tonight. Um, we're going to first of all talk about in your outline, basically covering the back page of your outline. Don't know how far. I'd like to get mostly done with this so I can go to uh, the first church in, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 2, uh, Ephesus next week, but we'll see how far we get. But what I want to do is start out tonight by reading uh, the first chapter of Revelation. Last time I'll do this. Hopefully next week we'll jump back and sit in chapter 2. But let me just go ahead and read this out loud. And then you can follow along in your Bible, on your, on your tablet, in your phone or whatever, wherever your Bible app is. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, I love that, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom uh, uh, and, and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me in a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then in chapters two and three, as you continue on, you get into then the letters of Jesus to the seven churches. So let's begin by uh, looking at, it's kind of the middle of your page there, you know, what does it mean to follow a Christ? Um, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is simply to, is to uh, agree with him, is to uh, live according to the standards that he has given us to follow. Uh, to truly follow Christ means he's become everything to us. And bottom line, when it comes to being a, a follower of Jesus Christ, understand that everyone is following someone or something. Everyone is following something today or someone today. Uh, uh, be it popular culture or family or selfish desires or friends maybe or, or God. And, and basically, uh, according to the word, we can only follow one thing at a time. You know, uh, God states we're to have no other gods before him. And, and to truly follow Christ means we don't follow anyone else or anything else. We are set, our face is set like a flint, so to speak, and we are following hard after Christ. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So if you're following someone, that means that that person's leading, you're not. Correct? And so following, there's no such thing as a halfway follower of Jesus Christ. And I think this is kind of the problem, or this is problematic today, and really in the church in every age, in every era. Uh, we, we tend to agree that Jesus is Lord, but we don't agree with what he has told us to do. We want to call the shots. We want to be in charge, you know, and uh, uh, we don't want to live and do what he has told us to do. And I think for too long, the church has simply evaluated its progress, not according to the standards of Christ and his word and what his word says, but according to what we want, according to the world standards. And really getting back to then the purpose of this study is, is to really reveal how the head of the church, Jesus Christ, uh, calls his church out of soul-distressing places, uh, calls the church out where the church has got off on their own and doing their own thing, you know. And really, uh, this is what it says in Ephesians 5.10, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Well, we're going to do that as we get into these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 because uh, we have a lot of things that Jesus commends and, and things that are pleasing to him, but there's also some things that aren't quite right. And he's going to lovingly rebuke and call the church uh, to repentance. Just, just by way of, of uh, re review, keep in mind that this is happening 60 to 65 years after his ascension. And so uh, second, third generation, maybe in the church there, and, and, and things aren't going uh, as copacetic as they need to be, all right? Uh, so basically, we're studying this to say, hey, as the head of the church, what do, you, what do you commend? What do you condemn? What is your counsel? We'll look at all those things as we walk through this in the next uh, several weeks. Uh, it's also to lead us back into his ways and, and walk according to his plan for our lives. And it's also to understand his ways 
uh, and, and only as we understand him and his ways can we really follow him the way he wants us to follow him. A.W. Tozer, have you ever heard of the guy? I have most of his books, great, great author in prayer, and, and he used to pray uh, on a regular basis with Leonard Ravenhill, and the two would have these intense prayer meetings, and I thought that would be one to join in on, you know. But A.W. Tozer said that the Christian life can, re can be reduced down to the base, this basic teaching, learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Well, in the book of Revelation, we have very succinctly, we're told with a, state, with a statement from Christ, you know, what does God approve? What does God love? And, and Christ leaves nothing to guesswork. Uh, we, we see these things found, especially in these first few chapters as well. But the Lord also reveals uh, some of the root causes of the various spiritual problems that are keeping his church, his churches, I should say, the seven churches in Asia Minor, from following him wholeheartedly. Now, my personal belief, my personal conviction, based on what I've read, what I've studied, is that these, these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, to the seven churches uh, not only apply to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and a few weeks ago I gave you a map in one of the lessons, but really they apply to uh, the church of all ages. And, and I said that, if, if I said last few weeks, if, if, if there's something that Jesus approved of at the church at Ephesus, for example, or Laodicea, or Sardis, or whatever, uh, if he approved it for them, because he hasn't changed, he's going to approve it in us. He's going to say, well, it was good for them. That means it's good for you. But likewise, if there's things that he rebuked them for and called them to repentance and say, God, hey, church, things aren't quite right here, he will also rebuke us for that as well. And, and, I, and I, I point to myself first because, because he's speaking to the seven stars, the pastors, the messengers of these churches. And so, uh, in other words, if he says to one church, repent because of thus and so, he's going to say that same thing to us if we have that same problem in our midst as well. And, and besides, after each letter to each church, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Now, turn and look at your neighbors. Do they have ears? Tug on their ear if you feel secure enough to do it. No, just teasing you. But we all have ears, but are we hearing what the voice of the Holy Spirit is saying? Now, the question often arises, now I'm going to spend a little bit of time here, but, but uh, what, why seven churches? Were there only seven churches in Asia Minor? Well, no, there were, there were lots of churches, but it says in Revelation 1-4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Of course, there were more than seven congregations, so what's the significance of seven churches? The question on your outline. When we read Revelation, it becomes apparent very quickly that it abounds with sevens. We have seven letters to seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, seven spirits, seven angels, seven plagues, seven lampstands. It's clear that something more than a numeric value is being expressed. In fact, the word or the, the number seven represents the concept of completeness. It represents the concept of unity, of fullness. And so that the word of God is being given to seven churches tells us that God is simply revealing his heart and his mind to the church 
universal, the, the, the church at large. And, and what he has to say goes far beyond the seven churches in Asia Minor. All right? So understand, these are timeless messages from God to us, his church. Let me also say it this way. We cannot contemporize uh, the Lord's command, hear what the Spirit is saying to the seven churches, and then skip over the actual messages that follow. All right. Uh, John Wolverd of Dallas Theological Seminary in his book, The Bible of Knowledge Commentary, an exposition of the scriptures. I also have his book, his commentary on Revelation on my desk right now, as well as I got Stanley Horton's book, and I got John Wolver's book, and there's one more, Newell, I think is the author. So I'm looking at those, and I'm also looking at the complete biblical library, the commentary, which part, in part was written by Stanley Horton as well, uh, as well as some other uh, AG scholars. But uh, this is what John Wolver said. Just as Paul's epistles, though addressed to individual churches, are also intended for the entire church, so these seven messages, speaking of Revelation 2 and 3, also apply to the entire church today insofar as they are in similar situations. There were many other churches such as those at Colossae, Magnesia, and Trellis, some larger than the seven churches mentioned in Asia Minor, but these were not addressed. So as the contents of the letters are analyzed, it is clear that they are, first of all, messages to the historical churches in the first century. I just got word last week that the Assemblies of God Arizona Ministry Network is planning a trip next week. I don't know if it's February or March, I mentioned, mentioned March of next year, to these historical sites in, in Asia Minor and looking at Paul's missionary journey. And this, I was like, this would be so cool because I, I also am reading for this series, rereading Dr. George Wood's notes. He's been there more than once and, and looking at some of that as well of what he has to say. But there were, they, they are messages to historical churches in the first century. Second, they also constitute a message to similar churches today. And then third, individual exhortations to persons or groups in the churches make it clear that the messages are also intended for individuals like for us today. Now, uh, though each message is different, the letters have similarities. For example... Uh, to each church, Christ declared, I know your works. There is nothing hidden from Jesus Christ. We're going to get into that more and more as we look at the seven letters. But he knows. He knows their works. Also, each one includes a promise to those who overcome. And each one gives an exhortation to those hearing. And each letter has a particular description of Christ that related to the message which follows. So we, we, we find a, a little more of a descriptive nature of who Jesus Christ is through these seven letters. Uh, each letter contain, or includes a commendation except the letter to uh, Laodicea, a rebuke except the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia, an exhortation and an encouraging promise to those heeding its message. As we get through, as we go through this, uh, you'll see headings like, "Okay, what does Christ commend to the church in Ephesus? What does Christ condemn to the church in Ephesus? What does Christ? What is Christ's counsel 
then to the church in Ephesus, and it goes on through all seven churches like that. And so in general, these letters to the seven churches address the problems inherent in churches throughout church history and are an incisive and comprehensive revelation of how Christ evaluates the local church. Bottom line is we, part of the church, need to be careful how we build his church. Because it says this in 1 Corinthians 3.10. By the grace God, Paul says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. We need to be careful how we build. Uh, Paul also says the day will test the quality of each man's work. You go on in 1 Corinthians 3.13, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And so once again, be careful how we build the church of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible makes it very clear that those who are in spiritual leadership will receive greater judgment uh, concerning their works. We talked about this a few Sundays ago, James chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will incur a stricter judgment. There is a greater judgment for these messengers, for these stars, for these pastors, for those in spiritual leadership. And then Luke 12, 48, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. If you've been given much, you're going to be, there's going to be much required of you. And so every leader and every person in God's flock needs to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church because we are not building our church, we are building His church. And we are accountable to Him. Seriously, whose church are we building? We better be listening carefully to what the Holy Spirit is saying to his church. Um, I think I've said in the, in the last few weeks, you know, we don't have to go after and seeking, you know, uh, and searching after fresh revelations when we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we have the, the word of God. And as I said last week, um, not by, by not studying this book, we're saying, well, that part of the Bible is not important. Well, it is God's word. It is important. So we need to know what it says. And if we are the church or say we're a part of the church, we have to know his standards by which we've measured, not our own. I, I think a lot of times, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay and everything else. It's like, well, I said last week, it's not what we say. It's what he says. All right. And then I got home last week and I'm looking on online, I'm reading through Facebook, and, and one of the pages I like is Leonard Ravenhill's page, and, and I, I posted that, that, that meme you saw on, on our church's Facebook page. Uh, the very last words of Jesus to his church was, be zealous, therefore, and repent. And I was like, I just, I just quoted some of this tonight, and here it is, put, putting this on, so that was kind of cool for me. But anyway, uh, let's define the church. Um, I know we define the church in many different ways today. Well, I'm going to church tonight, or let's go to the church, you know, at 5525 East Baseline Road. Uh, it's defined by a physical location, not all bad, because Jesus, you know, was defining the church in Ephesus and in Smyrna, so that's, that's okay. But, but let's, let's define the church according to the word. The New Testament word for church is the Greek word ecclesia. 
E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. And that simply means a called out company or assembly. A call, a people who are called out. Now in Greek secular society, this word signified those citizens within a city who were free and could vote. In other words, uh, they alone held the power to make changes. Like it used to be in America when we had the freedom to vote. Just, I'm just joking here. But uh, um, they became the governing body of the city, of the province. And I thought, what an incredible revelation we have of God's purpose for his people. That we, uh, that we be a people who are influential in, in showing people the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, God has called the church called out the church in order that we should continue in the high and holy calling of simply bearing testimony to the living Christ. In other words, this is what Christ has done. That's, that's the job of the church. That's my job. That's your job as part of the church it is really to make Christ known as the Lord of salvation throughout the whole, whole, whole world and the whole earth. And I think it's time for the church to be the church. I mean, let's be the church. Let's not apologize. Let's not hide our, our light under a bushel, so to speak. But let's let our light shine. We are the called out assembly. We are the ones that, that, that can and will fulfill uh, the purposes of God. Uh, Ephesians 2.6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so we need to understand, you know, who we are in Christ, where we've been spiritually positioned in Christ. We're walking with the one in whom is all power and all authority, and, and, and that's to be the church. That's what God has called us to be. Now, uh, Jesus made it clear that his followers uh, were to reflect his light and to be the light of this world. We are to be messengers of, of his saving power, the preserving salt of the earth. Rather than exposing darkness, though, I'm afraid that we've allowed darkness to settle in on the church and to invade the church. We've gotten our eyes off the light of the world. Uh, that is truly reflective of what I read two Sundays ago in the Christian Post where many evangelical pastors are now saying like 40%, yeah, you can earn your way to heaven. They don't have a biblical worldview. They don't have a, a, a biblical view of, of the sanctity of life. And I can go on and on and on. And it's like the church is in the shape it's in today, Western church, I should say, in America, because the pastors spiritually aren't where they're supposed to be at. They're not truly following Christ the way Christ wants us leaders to follow him. And so we failed, I believe, to, to a large degree at being the preserving salt of the earth. Uh, I, I read a study here a while back where even, even our marriages and families within the Christian community uh, are at times worse than that in the world. Um, you know, salt is not only to preserve, it's also to cause one to thirst. Well, rather than the world wanting what the church has, the church tends to thirst for what the world can offer. And that's not biblical Christianity. And I think just as Christ rebuked some of the five of the seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, there's, there's some rebuking that needs to go on and, and calling to repentance today. And so what's the solution to all this? We must turn our eyes back on the one who is leading the church, period. All right. 
Um, and and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir tonight because you're here, but I, you understand what I'm saying. Revelation 12, uh, 1, 12 and 13. I like this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, let me just pause right there. And I, I like these two verses here, but talking about the seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands. Jesus Christ is among his church. He is among his church, all right? And, and one of the primary responsibilities of the high priest during the Old Testament tabernacle period was that of trimming the lamps. Uh, twice a day, both morning and evening, he was instructed by Moses to enter the holy place and trim the seven lamps of the golden lampstand. As with any lamp that burns with oil, the wicks need to be trimmed periodically. I don't know if you realize this or not, but we have here the, uh, the, quite the candles for um, Christmas time. I'm, I went blank right there. Advent candles, thank you. And every week, without you knowing it, I will trim the wicks because otherwise they get too big. If you burn candles at home, the same thing. You got to keep on trimming that, otherwise that flame gets a little out of control sometimes and, and this and that. But uh, so much more true of, of the, the, the lampstands here. And uh, as with any lamp, they need to be trimmed. Oh, that was the priest's job. This involved removing any deposits that would build up on the wick itself. Uh, the end result being the lamp burned brightly, giving off required light. Well, if these deposits weren't removed, uh, then the light gradually weakened and ultimately would go out, plunging everything into darkness. This is why Jesus said in Revelation 2.5, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a serious challenge. You know, if, if you guys don't wise up here and repent and get right with me, but he's saying, um, you're, you're, not, you're not doing your job as a lampstand. And I'm going to remove it. So in the opening scene here of Revelation, we see our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, walking among the seven golden lamps. We also learn the lamps are the churches, and the Lord is filling them with oil, trimming the wicks, lest the light weaken and go out, lest the place where they are, are set be plunged into darkness. And I thought, what a brilliant picture here of the Lord's work among us. He is among the lampstands. And we, the church, have a role in this world. And the reason that our high priest comes and trims and corrects and brings fresh oil, whatever, is so we can burn brighter, so we can be more influential in our society. As I mentioned, we are to be light that burns brightly in this world of spiritual darkness. Uh, to be his light has always been God's purpose for his people. You recall that Isaiah declared this in Isaiah 62 and 3. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The church is the only visible expression of Christ in the world. That's why the church 
has to be pure, remain pure, and to keep the fire of God burning, if you will, within us. Uh, just as the lampstand's source of power came from the oil, so the church's only light comes from the life and the power of the Holy Spirit of God within her. Without the infilling of fresh oil of His presence, we cannot burn with His Spirit. And as with the lamps of old that require constant attention from the high priest, so, does, so too does the church. And so here in the opening scene, we have Christ among the lampstands, working on the lamps, removing the deposits, which were causing his church to lose her light and her testimony. Now, why was he doing this work? Because, same, same was true as then is now, the brilliancy that Christ intended for his church to radiate was lacking that consistency he longed for and expected of her. And so with that in mind, it becomes clear how vitally important this passage in Revelation is with regard to the church today. Also keep in mind that as we go through the first few chapters in Revelation, that this is, the, this is only the second time that Jesus spoke concerning his church. You'll recall the first time was during his earthly ministry when he declared in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her, against it. And then now we are 60 years later and Jesus is now ascended. He speaks for the second time concerning his church. And what does he say? Uh, church, all is not well. All right. And so Jesus comes to lovingly but firmly reprove and direct the church. He has a right to do that because it's his church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the Assemblies of God church. It's not a Baptist church or, you know, fill in the blank. It's his church. And so he's going to trim away what needs to be trimmed away. He's going to remove those areas that are contrary to his will, that get in the way, that causes to light to diminish. And so we see here that, that, that Jesus Christ wants his church once again to burn bright for him. He's among the lampstands. Uh, and we're going to see this. Um, I don't know about you, but it's kind of frightening, I think, for me, maybe for all pastors, uh, if we look through this and going, okay, uh, are things as, as good as we say they are? You know, are things the way he wants them to be? You know, we, we, we don't want to be examined by the, the chief examiner here. We, we just want him to, you know, show up when we invite him. And if we don't invite him, we're okay on our own and, and this and that. And, and uh, have you ever had people come to your house unannounced? And it's like, okay, my, I didn't get my bed made. I didn't get the, the stuff picked up. I didn't dust the furniture. And, and it's like, okay, what if the Lord would come and go, I'm here for a visit. Uh, could you come back in a couple of days, a couple of hours, a couple of weeks, Lord? I'm not quite ready. So I'm not sure if the pastors here are really ready to receive this or not, but, but they received it. And so um, we just got to make sure we're doing things his way and not our way. Um, if I was to tell uh, you or tell whoever, I mean, I've been having migraine headaches and, and I don't know what to do and this and that. Now, you have to understand that even those in the medical profession is divided when it comes to prescribing treatment maybe for, for a headache. 
For example, the family doctor might prescribe some painkillers. The chiropractor might recommend some type of adjustment. The nutritionist would say, yeah, you need to change your diet. You're not eating right. You need to get some healthier food in you. The optician would suggest that your headaches are caused by eye strain and you need some new glasses or contacts. The psychiatrist may say, hey, you need some therapy because, hey, after all, uh, there's so much inner conflict going on in you because of your parents or because of your background or this or that or, or whatever. See, each solution by itself may be totally wrong or it may be a needful part of the whole answer, but, but oftentimes the same thing happens today. Where, where in, in Christianity, well, we, we have our way of addressing things. We have our way of doing things. I mean, imagine, for example, what would happen, for instance, if we were to send a Pentecostal uh, to help a church from a more traditional or liturgical branch of Christianity, where the leader and the congregation are feeling dry, they need some direction, while the Pentecostal's diagnosis may be somewhat biased, and it could go something like this. What this church needs is some life. The service is too slow. It's too lethargic. You're lacking vision. You need to unplug that old pipe organ. Get a praise band in there. Get the drums rocking and rolling. The pastor needs to loosen up a little bit. Shed the tie. Be more relaxed. The worship leader needs to learn some new choruses. We need the fog machine, the light machines, and everything else. We just need to live things up a little bit. That's, that's one, one view of that. Now, on the other hand, if we were to send Dr. Evangelical to the Pentecostals, I'm sure his diagnosis could also reflect some bias. What this church needs is some order. You guys are so wild and crazy, you charismaniacs, you know, speaking in tongues and all. It's more like a circus than a church. Y'all need some reverence. Well, both might be right. But when it comes to evaluating his church, only he and what he says is what matters, is the point I'm trying to make. All right, we go about seeking this, seeking that, you know, and, and, and yet the greater, the greater need often remains unaddressed, you know. And so bottom line is we need to look at the examiner, Christ himself, who's, who's, who is the only one whose opinion matters, you know. And so the Apostle John begins by introducing us to, to Christ. And, and I know we could just, you know, spend, I could spend a lot of time in Revelation chapter 1, volumes have been written even in the first chapter. But uh, I want to start out by looking at verse 4. Uh, John's address to the seven churches comes from the eternal God who is, who was, and who is to come. So this was not someone who is spouting off their opinion as to what was wrong with the church. John mentions the seven spirits of God in the same verse, which indicates the concept of fullness, of unity, of completeness. In other words, as the examiner of our spiritual health, his examination is thorough. John also mentions in verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, a witness can either be a blessing or a curse, depending on whose side he's on or how well he recalls the events that he's about to testify about. Now, leaving out part of the vital information uh, could change the whole outcome of the trial. But not so with this case. Our witness is not only faithful, he is the most reliable witness of all. The faithful witness, Jesus Christ. I think, it also, I think it's also vital to understand that the one examining his church and passing judgment on our state of health speaks from a heavenly and an earthly advantage. Um, he is Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. 
Paul refers to him as the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. He too has been subject to every temptation you and I have. He knows our frame. He's walked in our shoes. He knows everything there is to know about us. And yet John also refers to him as the one in verse 5 who loves us, who has freed us from our sin by his blood. Now, what difference does that make? If there's any bias at all in his examination, it is that of love. In other words, truth without love can be devastating. However, truth spoken in love can be liberating. And so his love does not in any way compromise the truth, but rather motivates it. Uh, so the one here, Christ, our examiner, is not a foe, but a friend. He has the interest of the church in mind and his eternal purpose for the church to be the ecclesia, the called out ones in the community. Now, I would rather have my friend take the witness stand than my foe. How about you? All right. Uh, then John gives us even greater detail about this one who has come to examine the churches. Revelation 1.13 And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And so the seven churches needed to know that Christ was still in their midst as their compassionate high priest and conquering king. The attention here is not on the churches, but on Jesus Christ in the midst of the churches. That's the emphasis here. And so always keep in mind, and I'll say this from time and time again, but uh, the book of Revelation is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the Antichrist, not the church's problems here, not whatever. It's about Christ. Jesus is described as one like unto the Son of Man. Uh, this is an example of the use of the Old Testament language in the book of Revelation. As I said last week, uh, throughout, this, throughout this book, it is the only New Testament, book, New Testament book that quotes the Old Testament as much as it does. No other New Testament book does that. Uh, the phrase, like unto the Son of Man, is, is also prophesied in Daniel 7.13. We talked about Daniel and Revelation. And we'll even get into Ezekiel and Zechariah as we go through this. In my vision at night, Daniel 7.13, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And so this Jesus whom John saw is the triumphant one who will come to receive dominion and glory, Daniel 7, 14, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Then we move on to his clothing. The robe was not only symbolic of his royal dignity as the ruler of kings or prince of kings of the earth, but also his robe speaks of his judicial authority. If there's anyone who has a right to make the right judgments, it's him. It's Christ. Daniel 10.5 also says this, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. Daniel 10.5. And so his judicial authority, G. Campbell Morgan, in his book, Letters of Our Lord, states, quote, This robing of the Son of Man reveals his judicial position among the churches. 
and all the exercise of judicial right is based on that faithfulness of the eternal love. That he is girdled or bound across his breast is a symbol of his faithfulness and affection. And then we move on to Revelation 1.14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. And so it's Revelation 1.14. John next describes his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, which typifies maturity, wisdom, and understanding. Not only that, but white represents purity. Free from the taint of mixture of any kind, it typifies the dazzling splendor of his holiness, the holiness of Christ. Once again, Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Daniel 7, 9. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Think about that. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Revelation 1, 14. Going back to Daniel 10, verse 6. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Now, fire not only speaks of light. When you have a fire, you have light, okay? But, but uh, light being that which dispels darkness, bringing clarity and revelation. But fire, according to God's word, is also that which refines. Malachi, he is the refiner's fire, Malachi 3.2. Now, when a fire is applied to gold, what happens? It, it, uh, it burns away or it causes the dross, the impurities, to rise to the surface in order for it to be removed. Apart from the fire, the gold and the dross cling together, dulling and diminishing the value of the gold. And so the fire, his eyes are like blazing fire. It reveals the mixture and brings about a process of separation. It speaks of his purity once again. I love this quote from Smith Wigglesworth. Only melted gold can be minted. Only melted gold can be minted. In other words, we need the fire. The fire is turned up, the crucible is turned up to remove the impurities. Eyes of fire also speak of his all-searching, penetrating gaze that reveals and exposes every hidden sin or motivation. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.13 Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Following his opening remarks in each of the seven letters, as I mentioned already, he, he, he comes up and says, I know, I know. Once again, there's nothing in your life, there's nothing in this, his church, that he is not aware of. There's nothing in your life going on right now that he's not aware of. He knows. He sees. He understands. He, he, he sees all things. Revelation 1.15 His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. What's, it's interesting that John notes his feet were like burnished bronze like fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Feet speak of dominion. Feet speak of a person's walk, 
their stability, their strength. The fact that they were burnished reveals Christ's absolute purity, both in his walk and dominion. He walks among the churches. He has, he and he alone has the right to put all things under his feet. His authority is final, and his judgment is right, and his judgment is pure. That's, what the, that's the picture we're getting here uh, in chapter 1 of, of, of who Christ is. In verse 15, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Ezekiel 1.24, When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army, when they stood, stood still, they lowered their wings. Ezekiel 43, verse 2, And I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. See, here Jesus presented himself as the one mediator between God and man, as well as the one in whom dwells a fullness of the Godhead bodily. Going back then to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, what a picture here of Christ and all his glory and all his authority and all his power. We, we have a picture of the blending together of all the previous voices down throughout history. Uh, the writer of Hebrews expressed it best when he said in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, In the past, God spoke to us, to our forefathers, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. In other words, the mighty voice, like the sound of many waters, ties together all the previous voices, all the voices of old, all the prophetic voices, just as a mighty river contains the water from various streams that flow into it. His voice does not contradict his previous words spoken by his, ser by his servants and the prophets of old, but rather is the blending of all of them into one, the voice of many waters. His voice remains the same because his standards and his values have never changed. Amen. The voice of many waters. And then Revelation 1:16 in his I like this part too. In his right hand he held the seven stars. Even though he has some serious rebukes coming up to speak to them about he is still holding the leaders in his right hand. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Uh, more about that when we get to verse 19. But let me just kind of talk about this last part, and I'll close with this. Out of his mouth came a, two -edged, a sharp, two-edged sword. In other words, his words cut both ways. He not only condones, he also condemns. He not only defends, he also denounces. He not only praises, he also prosecutes. And his word is final, and there are no appeals or retrials. What he says is what matters. Isaiah 11.4 
but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Isaiah 49 verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Ephesians 6 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then Revelation 19, verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress the wine of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Church, his sword, his word is powerful. His word is what matters. It will not return to him void. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance and its strength. And so we'll pick that up next week because of time. But keep in mind, as we're walking through this, getting a description of Christ, I see the holiness of Jesus. I see the majesty of who he is. I see one who, has, who is saying, is, is going to say things and some hard things to the churches, and yet what he says is what matters. His word is powerful. His voice is powerful. I want to pause right there. We'll, we'll pick this up some more. I have a few more things to say before we get to Ephesus next week. But my challenge to you is to keep on reading chapter 1, but then move into chapter 2 and start reading his letter to the church at Ephesus and see what he commends. He commends several things in Ephesus. It's a great church, but he also condemns some things. And then what was his counsel then? to the church at Ephesus. We'll talk about that more next week. But we have here, I think, a glorious picture of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we also have, what I will say, a fearful picture of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And no wonder John, when he saw him, fell at his feet as though dead. It's like, and then what I love about this too is Jesus said, hey, it's okay. Don't be afraid, John. And so we have... We have the rebuke is going on, is going to go on, yeah, but we also have his love. He's, he, he's doing all this because he loves his church. And he wants the best for his church. And if we can have ears to hear what he's saying, we'll be much, that much better off as well. Amen? All right, you can go ahead and stop the recording. Any questions?